You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. College and high school students can testify that in most classes, the final exam is vitally important to their grade. They'll tell you that. How a person prepares, though, can have a significant impact on how they do on that test. Now, there are a lot of ways that you can prepare. You can, you can join a study group that preps for the final. You can take practice tests that help you get ready for it. You can attend uh, the professor's review sessions and hopefully gain some insight. A lot of people will cram the night before just to get as much information in and show up bleary-eyed to take the test fresh, right? Personally, I found that the thing that was most helpful to me most of the time was when the professor would give us a study guide. Now, you know what a study guide is. It's a a good study guide usually contained all of the things that you would need to know in order to do well on the final. In this part of the book of 1 Peter, Peter's letter, we're starting today with 1 Peter, the fourth chapter, if you want to turn there. In this part of the letter, he gives his readers the study guide, if you will, the things that you need to know in order to face the big tests that you're going to face if you follow Jesus. Peter gives us the important things that every Christian needs to know in order to persevere when facing spiritual opposition and even persecutions. He writes that Christians, both in the first century as well as today, he writes this so that all of us will be prepared. This series, Here We Go, is a series that examines these essential topics so that we're prepared to face the spiritual challenges and faithfully stand for Jesus. So, let's look at the very first verse of chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, 1 says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Now, it's interesting. This word attitude that he uses here in Greek actually means mind. Mind. And what Peter's talking about here is our mindset. He's highlighting the things that we should be focused on mentally. And in our text, Peter gives us two of these very important mindsets that we'll need to have in order to face the challenges that are coming our way as a Christ follower. So, the first of these mindsets is to have a militant attitude, mindset, towards sin. Be militant towards sin. The word picture that Peter uses here as he starts this section of Scripture is that of a soldier who puts on his equipment and all of his gear and takes up his arms for battle. He's ready to fight. That's the picture that he uses here. Now, we're in a spiritual fight, and our attitudes are the weapons that we use. And if they're weak or they're wrong, our attitudes, our attitudes will lead us to defeat. You've probably heard the old saying, outlook determines outcome. A believer must have the right mindset if he or she is going to live a God-honoring life. So let me read verse 1 one more time. He says this, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body... Arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. The thought that Peter 
gives us here appears to be, since Jesus suffered in his human body to the point of death, Christians should arm themselves with the same mindset that guided Jesus. And if you don't have a militant mindset towards sin, it's very possible, highly probable, that that sin eventually will bring you down in one way or another. Let me illustrate it this way. Have you ever walked into a dark room and stepped on something that you didn't know was there? You couldn't see it because it was so dark. Have you ever done that? I think probably the worst thing, one of the worst things I've ever stepped on was a Lego. Right? They're small, but they're like this little terrifying booby trap. I mean, it's like stepping on some kind of terrible, terrible booby trap. And it cripples you, right? It totally disables even the strongest of us. And I, yes, I put myself in that category, Okay. Or maybe you walked into a room and somebody left a cabinet door open and bam, you hit it. You know, you didn't see it. This happened to me a couple years ago. I got up on Sunday morning. I get up very early and I'm moving around very stealthily so that I don't wake my wife up. And uh, I went from the bathroom. I'm carrying all my dirty clothes and I want to take it into the laundry room. But someone had left the laundry door ajar. It wasn't open all the way. It was just open about four or five inches, and when I reached for the handle, bam, I couldn't see it, but I hit my head. I could not have aimed my head any better, all right? I bounced it off the thing, and I was thinking, are my teeth still there? And, you know, oh, I couldn't believe it. Now, no one saw it, so my, you know, I was fine. My pride was bruised a little bit, my head a little bit as well, but it doesn't take long for us to realize that when we walk in from the light into the darkness, it takes a while for our eyes to adjust, doesn't it? It doesn't take long for us to get accustomed to the darkness, though. You know, you're in there a minute or so, and then all of a sudden you can kind of see. It's kind of that way with sin. It's easy for Christians to get accustomed to sin, to get comfortable with it. Instead of having this militant mindset that says, I hate sin or I'm opposed to it, we're kind of like, yeah, we compromise here a little bit. We bend a roll over here a little bit. Before we know it, we're not offended by it anymore. In fact, we even kind of participate in it sometimes. We gradually get so used to it, sometimes we do that and we're not even realizing that it's happening. And before long, if we don't change There will be a price that we will have to pay for that sin. There is a consequence to that behavior. So what Peter does to help us to not, you know, get captivated or get captured by sin, he gives us several tips to help us develop this militant mindset towards sin. The first one is this. Remember what sin did to Jesus. Remember what sin did to Jesus. Jesus had to suffer because of sin. But... How can you and I enjoy the very things that caused him to suffer and eventually die? How can we enjoy that? Several years ago, Ann and I met this young woman who, at the time, was struggling with a serious addiction to alcohol. We had no idea. She just kept life going, and there were problems in her marriage and all of that, but we didn't know. And then one day, the wheels came off, and uh, man, what a tragedy She lost her marriage through the course of, she loved alcohol more than she did all of these other things in her life. She couldn't give it up. She wouldn't give it up. She was sold out. She was was into drunkenness. 
She didn't, I don't know that she liked that. I don't think she necessarily thought that that was the way she should live, but that's the way she chose to live. And so she lost her marriage. She lost a number of her friends. And she lost the better part of her reputation. After a, a long battle to get sober, she now works as a substance abuse counselor. Because today, she looks at that sin of drunkenness and fights it every day for her own benefit, but also she fights it for the benefit of others. How can we enjoy the things that cause Jesus pain, that actually led to his death? We should turn our back on those things to the best of our ability, right? We should. Now, here's the deal. Jesus came to this earth to conquer sin, and he did it once for all. This is what he did. He exposed the destructive nature of sin by teaching truth and showing us how to live that truth. And then he dealt with the consequences of sin by healing people and by forgiving. And then he dealt the final death blow to sin when he died on the cross. He was armed with this militant mindset toward sin. Yet, he had this great compassion for sinners. That's why he did it. For you and me. Now, Peter points out that there is this one key goal here in verse 1 that all Christians should have, and that is that we should be done with sin. That's what he says. We should be done with sin. We'll not totally reach that goal in the flesh. It's not possible. Ultimately, it'll happen when we die and we're in the presence of the Lord. Or when we go to heaven, if Jesus returns before we die, how cool would that be? But this should not keep us from striving to be done with sin just because we may not reach that goal in this lifetime. We should fight for it every day to be done with sin. Now Peter explains how this works. He says, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. The point seems to be that as a Christian suffers for doing God's will, he or she demonstrates that they're done with living in opposition to God. They're partnering with him. They're not fighting against him. Instead, we are ready to do God's will even if it involves some kind of challenge or difficulty or suffering. I love what the New Living Translation, it paraphrases this part of the verse. It says, for if you are willing to suffer for Christ, you have decided to stop sinning. It's pretty simple. Suffering plus a relationship with Jesus Christ in my life, in your life, can help us to have victory over sin. Suffering is never something that I think we should want or pursue, you know, for the sake of, oh, I got to suffer. But we should never take for granted that there is a byproduct that is very helpful when it comes to suffering. It helps us to be done with sin. That's what Peter's saying here. Verse 2. 1 Peter 4, verse 2 says this. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives. He's talking about Christians here. They do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. One aspect about sin, and I think it's really important to realize, is that it often seems pleasurable. Somebody said sin would never be anything we would be attracted to if it didn't look good, if it didn't look fun right? 
It always looks pleasurable. And frequently, it even seems harmless, like, oh, this isn't that big a deal. I mean, what's the problem? I mean, it's not that bad, right? And so we kind of get lured in that way. Let me explain what I'm talking about. When I would go to the movies, I'd go to the theater, and I would go there. I always had to have a popcorn. Always. It was like, it was required. And it, I could say before I got there, oh, I'm not going to have popcorn this time. I walk in and immediately I smell it. And it's like a lure. I'm just like drifting towards the line. And I get there. And then they put that, that, that popcorn, you know, that theater butter on it. Now I know, I know, it's just buttery, buttery flavored oil, right? They just spray that on it. They, they pull a lever and it shoots a big thing. And, and I always would get the, uh, the, uh, the best deal, right? It's the tub of popcorn, right? And I, I think we should all agree that you never should eat anything that's served in a tub, right? That just sounds bad. But I would get that because you got the best deal, right? You always got the best deal. You could do the math. I mean, I could get the medium, but for 30 cents more, I get the vat, you know, the big tub. And the thing about the tub is what? Free refills, because there's nothing better than one tub. The only thing better is two tubs, right? <laughs> And so I loved it, and I, I would get it every time I went. And for an hour, it was awesome. And then something happened in my biology, okay? I'm not sure what the chemistry is, but, oh, I would start feeling terrible. And I had this, oh, this was the worst decision. I have tremendous regret over that second tub. <laughs> You would think that I would learn from the past, but the next time it was the same thing. I go to the movies, I smell that awesome smell, and I go over and I get in line for that big tub of buttery oil goodness, and I start the cycle all over again. Sin is, sin is a lot like that. It masquerades around convincing us that it's awesome, and we get convinced of that. But in the end, it never delivers what it promised, and it always leaves you with some level of regret. So the second tip that Peter gives us here to develop a militant mindset towards sin is to live God's way. Live God's way. Let's just say no to sin. Let's live the way God calls us to. See, there's a contrast, not just in this text, but really throughout Scripture, a contrast between the desires of man and the will of God. They're at odds with each other. Our longtime friends, people who we used to party with, people who we used to sin with, they can't understand the change in a person's life when they come to Jesus. And they want us to return back to the good old days, chasing after evil desires, just like we used to. Remember how great it was? Remember how much fun we had? Now, the will of God that Peter is talking about here, if I could kind of generalize it, the will of God is what God calls a believer to do. It's the lifestyle, it's the behavior, it's the actions, it's, the, it's the, the ministries that he calls them to do. That's the will of God. And if you do the will of God, then we will invest what Peter calls the rest of our time in that which is lasting, and I would say personally even satisfying. Jesus instructed us in Matthew 6.20, he said, But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. What's he talking about here? He's saying that's what happens when you do the will of God. You're banking these treasures, these deposits, in your heavenly reward. Most people who take two weeks of their vacation to serve on a short-term mission 
come home energized and fulfilled, even though often they're coming home exhausted. And the reason for that is this experience was the result of living out God's will through serving those in need, teaching the Bible to other people, caring for those who are hurting, sharing the message of Jesus Christ and his love and forgiveness with others. Doing God's will has a deeply satisfying effect in a person's life. But here's the caveat. If we give in to the world around us, if we, if we follow the world's will, the world's plan, we will waste the rest of our time. And Peter's talking about the time from right now, if this is the timeline of your life, the time you die or the time Jesus returns, that, compared to eternity, is not very long. But he's saying, how are you going to spend it? Are you going to spend it living God's will? Or are you going to live the world's plan? You see, if we give into the world around us, we're going to waste the rest of our time, and we're going to regret it when we stand before Jesus. Instead, we should invest our lives into that which God calls us to. 1 Peter 4, verse 3, says this. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. The third tip that Peter gives us to help us develop this mindset, militant mindset towards sin, is to remember who you were before you met Jesus. Who you were before you met Jesus. There are times when looking back at your past wouldn't be advised. It's really not a good idea because Satan is going to use those memories to try to discourage you. He's going to say, that's really who you are. That mess from the past, remember that sinful, dirty, awful, morally depraved person? That's you. But you know that because of what Jesus did on the cross, your sins have been washed away. And he redeemed that life. So sometimes it's not a good idea to look back because Satan's going to try to monkey with you. But there are times when reflecting on your past is beneficial. Paul called, recalled that he had been a persecutor of Christians. And these memories, they actually motivated him to do even greater things for Jesus. But often the oppression of sin has a tendency to fade over time if we don't remember it. And we end up remembering only the pleasures of sin. And when that happens... We're easily set up to be tempted and to fall for that temptation again. Don't let that happen to you. Don't forget what sin did to your life. Growing up, my family had a gas stove in our kitchen. Some of you know what that's like, cooking with gas. I'm not talking about grilling. I'm talking about cooking in the house, right? And I was a kid, as a little kid, I was fascinated with fire and so I was captivated by those two little blue flames. They had little metal caps with vents on the side, and they were on top of the stovetop of our family's stove. And one day, as I was in the kitchen, I happened to notice the flames, and they almost hypnotized me. You know, I'm sitting there. And I, I thought to myself, I wonder if those metal caps are hot. <laughs> because there's a flame right underneath them. Now, I wasn't sure, was there enough distance for it to cool or be cool? So I thought, I'm going to touch one of them just to see if they're hot. But I had a plan. I was going to touch it really fast, okay, so that it didn't hurt. That was a very bad plan, all right? Very bad plan. 
<laughs> See, I touched it and it left a mark on my finger that was there for a long time. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> you, can under, you can almost imagine. I didn't, the mark is gone. The mark is gone. I got my fingerprint back. But I've never forgotten it. I've never forgotten it. When it comes to sin, don't forget the results that sin left in your life. Don't forget the problems. Don't forget the confusion it caused. Don't forget the destruction that it left. Don't forget the pain that it caused you and other people in your life. Because if you forget it, you may repeat that sin again. Don't ever do that. Don't forget it. Now, there's another key insight about sin I think is important to point out, and that is that sinners imitate each other because they are wanting to conform to the behaviors of others in this world. We want to fit in, so we conform to the behaviors of other people. But Paul warned us in Romans 12, too, he said, do not conform to the patterns of this world. The advice that comes from sinners is always in contrast with the will of God. Verse 3 in our text reveals clearly that this old life of sin, that these readers, the people from, uh, the, these people who Paul was, or Peter was writing to, this was their life before they were converted. All of this sin. And these sins, Peter listed, are common excesses. Excesses of drinking, of sex, of wild parties. They throw in a little bit of idolatry. This was common in the first century among the pagans. Or the Gentiles. But you know what? A lot of that's common today. We're not a lot. I mean, we have a lot more technology and we're a little more sophisticated, at least we think. The truth is, sin is very similar today as it was in the first century. We we may not be guilty of the sins that were listed in verse 3. But before we came to Jesus, we were sinners. And our sins were part of what put him on the cross as well. How could we ever go back to that kind of life? Well, the first mindset is be militant towards sin. The second mindset that Peter gives us here is to be patient towards sinners. You've already heard the phrase, hate the sin but love the sinner. That's what Peter's talking about here. Be militant towards the sin, but be patient with the sinner. Listen to what verse 4 says. He says, they are surprised. He's talking about those who knew you back when you were a sinner. They're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living. And they heap abuse on you. They heap abuse on you. You know, non-believers do not understand a radical change that happens when a person gives their life to Jesus. When they put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ and they become one of the children of God. They don't think, though, that it's odd when a person wrecks their body through drug and alcohol abuse, or they're not so bothered when somebody destroys their family and their marriage through infidelity, and they're not all that knotted up when somebody ruins their life by indulging in one sin after another. But you let a drunk guy get sober, or you get an immoral woman live pure, and their friends think that they have lost their cotton-picking mind. They don't get it. Why is that so? Because following Jesus goes against the grain of this world. You are going against the current of the culture. Your life without sin makes others' lives look less fulfilled and oftentimes much more complicated. 
You see, it's easier for them when you felt guilty and empty and hung over together. As the old saying goes, misery loves company. But now you're not doing that, and your life looks a lot better. It looks almost admirable. They kind of envy it. And the thought is that if I could just bring you down to where I am, then I won't feel so gypped because I don't have that life. You see, we, we've got to be patient toward them. Even though we don't agree with their lifestyle, we don't practice that anymore. At least we're trying not to. And we, we don't participate in those sins anymore. We have to be patient with them even when they sin. After all, unsaved people often are blind to spiritual truth. I'm not saying they're blind to all truth, because that's not true. But they often are blind to spiritual truth. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Here's an important fact. Our contact with the lost is so important to them since you might be the only Bible that they'll ever read. The example of Christ in you is the only example that they'll ever see. We may be the only source of truth that they're ever exposed to. Not partying with them or jumping into sin with them may cause some friction, and I understand that. So instead of arguing with them, though, Let's pray for them. Pray for them to put their faith and trust in Jesus. And here's why that's so important to do. 1 Peter 4, verse 5 says this. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The sobering reality is one day we all will face the final judgment before God. They need Jesus Or they will face punishment for their sins because they don't have a Savior. So don't ever give up on them. Don't ever give up on them. All right, Peter closes with verse 6 of chapter 4. This is what he says. For this is the reason the gospel was preached. For those people, those very people who may give you trouble, may even persecute you because of your following Jesus. He says, for this is the reason the gospel was preached. For them even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. Peter reminds us that the gospel was preached to save people. And then he's reminding his readers uh, that many Christians who've been murdered, who were martyrs for their faith, they walked this path. Peter's saying, this is the way to go. And they paid for it with their lives. And what I think Peter is saying here is this. It's worth it. It's worth it. To walk in God's will, to follow God's will for your life, even if it causes you to lose your life. See, many of these people who were martyred had been falsely judged by men. But now, he says, in the presence of God, they received their reward. See, the coming judgment not only will bring sinners into account, and they will be held account, as verse 5 said, for their sins if they don't have Jesus as their Savior. 
but it will also reverse the judgments of man. Even though pagans might condemn Christians and even put them to death in this lifetime, yet in God's judgment, there will be a reversal. And sinners will be punished for their sins. And Christians will live in heaven with the Lord for all eternity. So, because we love those who are lost, and all of us know somebody who's a heartbeat away from spending eternity without Jesus, because we love them, we need to develop this mindset to be patient toward them because they need Jesus. Let me close with this. The Hubble telescope is a one and a half billion dollar space telescope that was launched into orbit in 1990 and it remains in operation today, still sending pictures back to us from all around the universe. But within weeks of its launch, some of you may remember this, NASA realized that the pictures that were coming from the Hubble indicated there was a serious problem with the optical systems. In layman's terms, the pictures that were coming from the Hubble telescope were blurry. That's what you get for $1.5 billion right there. This is what was coming back. This is what it should have looked like. That's actually clear. This is what it, that's what it was coming. And they were thinking, what is happening Well, it was announced in June of 1990, several months after the launch, that the cause of the problem was the primary mirror that had been polished to the wrong shape. Oops. (laughs) I bet somebody got fired for that. So NASA went to work. All their smart guys, they got around a table, they started working, they figured out a way to remedy the problem. And on December 18th, 1993... A mission to fix the Hubble went off without a hitch. And now the pictures coming from the Hubble come with clarity because they fixed the Hubble's focus. One thing that we've learned from the Hubble telescope is that no matter how much money you spend, if the focus isn't right, then the pictures will never be right. If the focus isn't right, the pictures will always be blurry. If we hope to live out God's will during the time that we have here, then we need to keep our mindset focused. Because we're going to face some challenges. They're going to test us, try to direct us in directions of sin, try to pull us off of the mission and the calling that God has for us. We need to be focused in, in two specific ways. Being focused on a mil, being militant toward sin because we need that in order to stay faithful and not fall into the traps of sin. And secondly, to be patient towards sinners because they need that. They desperately need the truth about Jesus' love and forgiveness that you and I have. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for preparing us for the challenges ahead the challenges that some in this room may be facing right now. And I know, God, that all of us will face at one time or another. Lord, help us to be focused in such a way that we don't give up, that we don't quit, that we don't fall into the traps that the enemy sets. We want to live this life that you called us to live. We want to accomplish the things that you've called us to accomplish. God, keep us focused to be militant towards sin so that we don't slide back into the old behaviors. We want to be done with sin. Lord, keep us focused on being patient toward those around us who are sinners. 
Lord, for people who we love and know very well and for those who we don't know at all, help us to be patient with them as others were patient with us. We know, God, they need you. So don't let us ever give up on them. And God, if that person might be here today, I pray they would know just how much you love them, how much you, you, were, able, you were willing and able to sacrifice so that they might know you and spend eternity with you, have their sins washed away, and your, your Holy Spirit to live within them, be part of your family, of the family of God. Lord, I pray today might be the day that they would say yes to you. God, we love you. I pray you'll help us to stay focused so that we might live out your will in the remainder of our days. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna worship, celebrate God's goodness. If you have uh, anything on your heart you wanna talk about, maybe you wanna talk further about what it means to follow Jesus. You've never done that. You wanna talk with someone. I'm going to be down here the remainder of the service. I'll be down here after the service. I'd love to talk to you. Maybe you just need somebody to pray with you. Whatever the case is, I'd be happy to do that. So make your way down here if you have a need. Let's stand together. Let's worship our Lord together.